Well, here we are again for another conversation. Today I'd like to talk about motivation. I'd like us to dissect and understand the fundamentals, the layers, the parameters. And I mean motivation in every sense of the word, as in what drives you, what makes you act the way you do, what is behind the feeling of wanting to do an action. And we're going to look at a number of popular mainstream pieces of literature or stories to help illustrate these layers of motivation. Motivation is also the hero's journey or the personal journey. It's the life narrative. It's the thing that you are living, the very essence of your life. So it's quite a broad subject that we want to talk about, and it's quite a broad definition of the word motivation. As I understand it, or the way I'd like us to proceed in this dissection, this intellectualization, there are three main categories of motivation. And for simplicity's sake, I've called these, first of all, the call, second of all, the arrow, and third of all, the door. We can use these three categories to understand all journeys, all actions that we do. Generally speaking, we're talking in mythological terms when we use these sorts of words. We're talking about narratives. We're talking about characters that go through scenes. They have dichotomies. They have challenges to face. They have complications that they have to overcome. They have a string of actions that start to amount to a climax. This is what we mean by mythology or storytelling or narrative. So this is very much a sort of Carl Jung idea of having a broad concept that is applied to a narrative. You can see it also in a little bit of the Joseph Campbell mythology analysis. So the stories that I'd like to go through is Harry Potter, The Matrix, Narnia, and The Lord of the Rings. And we can put The Hobbit in with The Lord of the Rings as well. I'm sure you've heard of at least some of these, if not all of these, as they are very prevalent in our culture, in our history, in our mainstream entertainment. And these are interesting pieces of story because they bridge the gap between entertainment and philosophical insight or mythological insight, or at least they can be interpreted in that way. Some people take them on as just entertainment, but here in this conversation, we're going to try and have a philosophical and mythological dissection of these four stories. Harry Potter, The Matrix, Narnia, and The Lord of the Rings. So before we get into that, let me just flesh out these three categories, the call, the arrow, and the door. The call is the 
message that is being sent to you that is telling you you need to do something. You need to change your actions. You need to do an action. You need to respond to this message. The call is someone who's telling you to do something, someone who's showing you a new direction. It also can come in many different forms. So the communication can happen subtle, in a subtle way. It can be encoded. It can come across in many different mediums. It doesn't have to just be a person that is telling you to do something. It might be a secret code. It might be a subtle thing which is very hard to really get your head around unless you know a certain language. Sometimes the call has to happen repeatedly before the person who's listening to it even notices that it's there. Sometimes the person, the hero, or the person who's receiving the call, hears the call and doesn't respond to it. Sometimes they deny the call. They reject the call. This is the call to action. This is the message which is going to change something significant about your life. Something's pulling you in a new direction. Something's telling you that something's not quite right and it needs to be resolved. Something's telling you that there's something that needs your attention, which is not getting the due attention that you deserve, which it deserves. There's something you need to fix. There's something you need to overcome. There is something that requires you to put more energy into it than you already are, if that is, if you are putting any energy into it at all. So this is the call. This is something telling you what to do. The other thing about calls is sometimes they're not entirely intentional from the other side. Sometimes a a hero or the protagonist of our story can hear a call when really it wasn't intended to be a specific call. You might hear something and interpret it as saying, well, that was a message meant for me. It's very hard to know where the intention lies, whether the hero is simply hearing it or whether calls are actually sent to the hero for a purpose with a direct intention. And it's different for each story depending on which story we're talking about. Now, the next layer or the next level of motivation I've called the arrow. So each of these layers builds on the last, and each of these layers has the preceding layer within it built into it. So, what happens when you hear a call repeatedly and you understand what the call means and you know how to respond to the call and you end up with an arrow? You end up with direction. This is more like a path rather than a call. So if a call is like a street sign, or a call is like a map, or an objective, or a goal, or a destination, then the arrow is the path. The arrow is the journey. The arrow is the sequence of steps you need to do. You need to work through these things. You need to go through these motions. You need to do these processes. 
You need to repeat a certain number of actions over and over again. And the call always stays there. The call is constant for the arrow. So if a call is a single point, like a dot, then the arrow is a line. It's an infinite number of calls strung together. Because, of course, a line is an infinite number of dots. Now, the arrow can change directions. The arrow can still be open to new calls, to different calls. And that's what it really means to have a strong arrow, a strong direction, is to be able to re-divert the arrow depending on how new calls come along. Because at different points throughout the story, there are different complications. There are different hurdles that need to be overcome. And there are certain things that need to be taken care of before the final objective is completed. The final climax is a string of events. It's a string of processes and actions. You can't just jump straight to the end. You have to be on the path. You need to be walking, working at it, working at it, chipping away, chipping away. You can't really get momentum unless you're always hearing the call. If you wake up in the morning and you remember what the call was, and you can hear it loud and clear, then you've got an arrow of direction. You've got a path to walk. And then you wake up the next day, and you hear that call again. You hear that direction again. Then you've got a path to walk, and you keep working on it. That's your arrow. And the arrow has this constant repetitive nature to it happens over and over again, stringing together these different ideas about the objective, about how to overcome the complications. The arrow also has an element of understanding how to overcome the complications. The arrow of direction, the arrow of motivation, needs to be able to see what steps need to be taken one after the other. And that's the arrow of motivation. That's the direction of the path, the direction of the story or the narrative. And now we come to the door. So this is the highest level of motivation. And it is distinctly different from the call and the arrow. It is probably the most powerful form of motivation. It's the most hardcore, bone-shattering, deep and profound sense of change and overcoming adversity. And the door is very different to the call and the arrow, but it still needs to have the foundation of the call and the arrow. Now, the door is not an objective. The door is not a sequence of events, it is a single event. The door is always present. It's always immediate. It's always right in front of the person's face. And there are different degrees of this. There are different expl explorations of this, depending on which story we're talking about. But basically, the door is that one thing that is right there, and all you have to do is walk through it. You don't have to hear about it and recognize it, like the call, and you don't have to work towards it, 
you don't have to journey towards it like the arrow. It's right there, right in front of your face. Now, of course, if you haven't heard the call and you haven't been walking the path, then you can't have the maturity to know that the door is there. And so many stories, so many pieces of mythology have the theme of the very end, realizing that what you needed, what you were looking for, was something that you had all along. The thing that you've been working for and moving towards has always been with you. It's always been right there. You didn't even need to go on the journey if you had known that it was right there. And this is the case with the door. And it's a bit paradoxical because you did need to go on the journey to recognize that the door is there. You did need to know that the lessons you were learning from hearing the call, knowing how to respond to the call, and walk the path, the arrow of motivation, for a while, and overcome the sequences of adversity and complications. You needed to do all that in order to recognize the door. But after a certain while, the door is always there. You can also realize that the door doesn't really take anything to walk through. It's not a complication. You have the ability to simply step through the door right now. But what stops you is your fear. What stops you is the unknown. Because the door is the most mysterious thing. It is the most elusive thing. When you hear the call, you have some idea of what you're getting yourself into. And when you're walking with an arrow of direction, with a motivation, you're walking the path, you're walking because you want to get towards something better. You want to increase something that's better for you, that's positive. But the door is very different to that because the door, you have no idea what is on the other side. Well, not entirely no idea. You know that it will be significant. You know that it will be heavy. You know that it will be profound once you step through the door. And a lot of doors, once you step through them, you cannot go back at all. And that's a common theme that comes up in many different stories. But that's the basic outline of the call, the arrow, and the door. So let's move into our popular stories. And hopefully I can rack my brain to remember the plot lines of these wonderful pieces of entertainment. And let's apply the call, the arrow, and the door. Let's apply these concepts to our favorite wizard, Harry Potter. When Harry Potter turns old enough, this big, mysterious wizard turns up at his door and says, you're a wizard. You're a famous wizard. You're a hero in the wizarding world. It's time for you to go to wizard school. And of course, Harry's shocked about all this. He just says, no, I'm just Harry. I don't I don't understand. I'm just a simple boy. I'm nobody. One year at school, Harry keeps seeing these mysterious messages, these mysterious codings about the Chamber of Secrets being opened. He keeps running into these 
Encryptions. Might be something written on the wall with blood. Might be a magic spell. Might be something that someone said. But he keeps hearing this thing about the Chamber of Secrets. One year at school, at wizarding school, Harry has his name come out of the Goblet of Fire. And of course, when it comes out, it's in addition to the other people that have already been chosen. And he wasn't actually meant to be chosen because he wasn't old enough to enter. And he didn't even enter his own name. But he was being called to enter into the wizard contest by the Goblet of Fire. And that's why his name came out. That's his call to the adventure. That's his call to action. Harry keeps having dreams about the prophecy. He keeps having these visions of what he must do, what he must find, where he must go to get this magic glass ball, which is called the prophecy. And the prophecy is going to tell him what his final battle will be, or what his ultimate showdown will be. And a large portion of one of the books is about Harry trying to understand how to get towards this prophecy, how to find it. Harry also has many indications shown to him about the nature of this character called Snape. He keeps having indications of this character and about how he shouldn't trust him, how he shouldn't be someone that is on the good side, is actually working for the bad guys. And this is a theme that runs out through many of the books. And we can never really tell. It's quite complicated how Snape plays this role in the story of indicating something to Harry. And it's not quite clear whether Harry is really just interpreting that for himself or misreading the situation. For the entirety of the first book, Harry was sure that Snape was trying to steal the Philosopher's Stone. And then in the end, he came into the magic chamber where the Philosopher's Stone was. And it wasn't Snape, it was someone else. It was the other teacher that was helping Lord Voldemort, the evil wizard, to try and find it. And so that would be an indication of how a call was being interpreted by the hero incorrectly and yet it still got him to his destination. It still got him to the place he needed to be in order to have the final showdown, to overcome the ultimate climax. After a certain point, Harry understands what he has to do. He gets onto the path. And this is more prevalent towards the end of the Chronicle of Harry Potter, of the series of Harry Potter, because he's had so many indications of what he needs to do. He's had visions. He's gone into magic memory pools. He's shared conversations with people. He's done questions of mythological and magical creatures like the gremlins or the, what are they called? The bank people? I've forgotten what they're, I've forgotten what they're called. Goblins, I think they are. But he knows what he has to do. And what he has to do is destroy the Horcrux. So there are these seven magical things which have the evil soul of Lord Voldemort in them. And he knows he has to kill them. 
and he even knows how to find certain ones. He, ne- he, he understands that he needs to be called to it. There are little indications that he can get, that he can fall into, that he can come across, which will tell him where they are. And that's an example of this relationship between the arrow and the calls. Because for him to go around searching on a constant quest, day after day, for these magic horcruxes, he needs to be able to have the skill of hearing the call. And they do call out in certain ways. There are certain indications that come his way. And how he learns to do that is by going through the process of hearing the call, and getting on the path, and being determined. And there's a, there's a critical scene where he's sitting down with one of the goblins and asking about something to do with the Horcruxes. And the goblin says something about how, why are you doing this? Why should I help you? What's going on? What's the point of all this? And you shouldn't be doing this. It's not your job. And it's a critical moment because that's when Harry says, no, this is what I am doing. And that is the heroic moment where he decides he is on the path. He's doing it because he is answering the call. No matter what, whether the call is right or wrong, whether he has complications or not, he is on that path. This is the arrow of direction. And those final journeys, those final places that Harry visits in the magic world are brought to him because he's on that constant arrow. He knows he's on a mission. Now, for the final level of motivation, the door, this comes up as a recurring theme throughout Harry Potter. First of all, Harry lives under a staircase and there's a tiny door that he has to come out and he's sometimes locked in there by his his, uh, half-brother. Is he half-brother or step-brother? Cousin, I think. But that's one example of the door that he has to come through. And then when he gets onto his first year of wizard school, he goes to the platform at London Station and he needs to go through a brick wall to get to platform nine and three quarters. That's a magic door that is right there. It's a very obvious door if you know that it's there. And all you've got to really do is trust that you go through it. And when he goes through that door, he has no idea what he's going to find. And what is on the other side of that wall is an entirely different world. It's an entirely different spectrum of culture and magic. It's full of wizards. And there's always this little thing between the wizard world and the muggle world or the non wizard world in Harry Potter, but it's not strongly emphasized. It only comes up occasionally. It's more often that while Harry is in the magic world, he comes across a door. How about the door from the wizard school into the house dormitory where Harry sleeps and has his community activities? What's interesting about that is each house has their own special kind of door. They have their own way of getting into their community. So for Harry, it's a painting where he has to say the magic password and the painting talks to him and then opens up. So it's hidden behind a painting. And that's another example of this division between worlds by a door. Because when you go into your community, it's an exclusive club. It's your friends. It's your family. 
It's where you can relax. It's where you can talk about things just for you. It's your house team. It's your home base. It's divided by this magic door. The Chamber of Secrets has a magic door entrance to it. There's a number of doors in that sequence. The Philosopher's Stone is guarded by a number of doors, a number of things that need to be overcome. And the Goblet of Fire is actually an example of the climax of a door transporting the hero to another world. So when Harry makes his way through the wizard maze and he's doing all his tournaments, he finally makes his way to the trophy, which is the winning point of the tournament, of the wizard tournament. And when him and his other friend wizard grab that trophy, they are instantly transported to an entirely new world. That's an example of a door catching the hero unawares. They have no idea that they have been taken straight out of where they are into a totally new context. And of course, when Harry hits that magic cup and he's transported to the new world, he ends up in the graveyard, which is actually the magic potion pot, which has Lord Voldemort return from it. So there's an evil wizard there doing this spell, doing this magic to help rebirth the evil Lord Voldemort. And that's where Harry has his first major showdown with the evil wizard. It's in that situation that he really has to face a huge darkness. And there are lots of examples throughout Harry Potter which have the three levels of motivation. So the calls are the little indications that he needs to go in a new direction. He needs to find something. And the arrow is the string of those indications. It's the string of those messages. One thing leads to another. It's the path. And Harry isn't always sure of his path. Sometimes he's lost. Sometimes he's struggling just to find the path. And that can be a complication unto itself. And there's many indications of the door in Harry Potter. And they almost always have this separation between worlds. And the door is the division between one entirely different place to another. There's also a magic door where the evil wizards are fighting with Harry and his team. And that door is death on the other side. And there are ghosts on the other side. And that's when Harry's uncle, I think he's his uncle, Sirius Black, he might be his stepdad. Or his, not his stepdad, his godfather. Anyway, my Harry Potter trivia isn't, it's a little bit rusty, but Sirius Black is a sort of father figure to Harry Potter. And while they're having this showdown, there's this battle between good and evil happening. Sirius Black is pushed into this this door which kills him. Of course, there are a lot of examples of the difference between the magic world and the muggle world, which is divided by a door. There are lots of different ways to get into the magic world. So that's Harry Potter. You could probably think of more examples than that if you are a Harry Potter fan. It's been a little while since I've familiarized myself with Harry Potter. Neo is the hero of the 
journey of the Matrix trilogy. He's our main protagonist. Our main character. Lead role. He's asleep at his computer. And then his computer does something quite funny. It talks to him. Sends him this message. Tells him to wake up. The Matrix has you. There's then a knock at the door. And he's friends of his tell him to come out. Come out and have a party. And when he's out, he meets this, this mysterious woman, Trinity. And she's telling him things. She's very encryptive, very mysterious. She's giving him information that he needs to respond to, he needs to deal with. And then Neo actually has a phone call, a literal phone call. So he is being called literally on the phone by Morpheus, who is telling him what he needs to do, what he is. He's telling him he is the one. Sometimes the call is quite literal. Then he gets mixed up with the agents. It comes, becomes very clear that he needs to deal with this issue in his life, even though he is sure that he hasn't done anything. It's one of the key lines when he's about to try and escape from the agents. He's, he's saying, what have I done? I haven't done anything. Why is someone coming after me? I'm nobody. And then Neo ends up meeting the guys, Morpheus, Trinity, and all the others. And they're calling him to take the red pill or the blue pill. It's a decision. It's an offer. And we're starting to see this string of calls come together into an arrow. It takes quite a while before Neo realizes he's on a journey. He's on a path. It's hard to tell where exactly that idea clicks into his mind. But these are all indications of the call. And then he busts open out of the Matrix into the real world for the first time. He has his rebirth because he's followed this string of calls. He's decided he's going to walk on this path. That's his first major door. From the Matrix into the real world. It's interesting that he had no idea what was on the other side of that door. No idea what it would entail. Once he'd gone through that door, there's no going back. Then we have the Matrix, or the chair, the Matrix chair that they used to hack into the Matrix, always available. So it's quite interesting that this difference between the real world and the matrix, or other worlds, program worlds, machine worlds, is always there. It's always on that spaceship. All they have to do is sit down on the chair, plug in the machine into the back of their heads, upload the software, or hack into it, and then they're there. It's always available. They can do it at any time. And that's an example of the door to the other world always being there. What makes it Complicated, though, is you're not sure what will happen on the other side. These characters don't go into the Matrix unless they have a very good reason to, because there is always a risk. You never know what's going to happen. There could always be a series of complications, which of course does happen in the first Matrix, when he's responding to the call of the Oracle. The Oracle gives him information all throughout the series, which Neo needs to respond to. 
in the second matrix, the door theme is quite significant because the door leads to the architect. And there is a long process that Neo needs to go through in order to be able to reach that door, even though he's heard about it in his dreams, he's visualized it. And he knows he needs to reach the key maker, which is another character, in order to get through the door. He needs to go through other doors. There's a whole theme of doors opening up and going into two completely different worlds throughout the second Matrix, Matrix Reloaded. But the ultimate climax is this difference between the Matrix and the world of the, or the room with the architect in it. And of course, what does the architect give him? He gives him a call to a mission, which is a choice between two doors. And the choice between two doors is all three levels of motivation coming together at once. Because you have a call to action. And you have an arrow of direction. Because once you choose one of those doors, you're going to be on a set path, which you will have to be on, depending on that choice. And it's expressed in these two doors. So one door, as the architect sells it to him, or he tries to explain it to him, leads to the matrix and back to ultimately the destruction of the human race and also the death of Trinity, the love interest of Neo. And then the other door leads to the rejuvenation, the reset button of the human race, the starting again on the terms of the machines. Neo, in true hero form, rebels, goes against this choice and refuses to be forced into a supposedly better choice than another, and being forced to sacrifice what he doesn't want to sacrifice, and he goes back to the Matrix to save Trinity. Once he steps through that door, he knows exactly what he has to do. That's where he shoots through like Superman and blows the building apart, and he's exploding, shooting through the city with all those cars smashing behind him from all the speed in order to save Trinity, catch Trinity before she dies, before she falls out of the building. So he's responded to the call, he's got a sharp arrow, and he's stepped through the door. And that's what makes that such a climax. The ultimate climax is when Neo merges with his arch-nemesis, Agent Smith. And that's another example of a door. It's stepping into something, stepping into another world, the door of death. So Neo is plugged in at the source of the machines. He's not just plugged into any old machine to hack into the Matrix. He's actually made it to the source, the machine mainframe, the machine city, the enemy city. And he's plugged in there to go into the Matrix world. And it's there that he has his showdown with Agent Smith. And while he's fighting, he's on his mission. He's got his arrow. He's got his motivation. And there's a key piece of dialogue which Neo says right before Agent Smith kills him or merges with him. And that is that Neo says, You were always right. It is inevitable. It is inevitable. 
you were right all along. And it's only when Neo finally accepts his fate, his death, his emerging, his coming into oneness with all that he has been rebelling against, including his arch-nemesis, that the entire equation is balanced, that the story is resolved. It's quite interesting to note that this clash between good and evil, this final merge between good and evil, could have really happened at the very start of the story. Because one of the earliest scenes in the Matrix trilogy is a showdown between Agent Smith and Neo. It's that scene in the interrogation room. And it's funny that Agent Smith actually puts something, he puts that bug into Neo in that scene. Almost like a reflection of the final scene where Agent Smith puts himself into Neo to make him into an Agent Smith. The Matrix is a good example of indications of what the hero needs to do, messages coming from the Oracle, messages coming from other people, messages coming from his mentor, Morpheus, and there's many examples of Neo knowing what he needs to do and getting on with the job. There is also times when he's not sure of what he needs to do, he doesn't know the process of the complications, and it's not until he really thinks it out for himself and really starts to own the significance of the messages that he's receiving from the characters in his narrative that he really gets onto the motivation of getting on with the job and going through the motions of the story. And there's always, there's always that overhanging idea that there's an entirely different world just a step away from the world that Neo is in. It's quite interesting that the significance and the realness of each world changes as the story unfolds. Because at first we are in the Matrix, the audience is on board with Neo and his story, and then we come out into reality as we follow his story, and the Matrix becomes the fake world. And then again, there are even hints at the very end, when peace has been restored and the war is over, and Morpheus says this funny little throwaway line where he says, is this real? Is this actually happening? And he's dreamed about peace for so long. He can't believe that it's really there. He can't believe that he is really in the world that he is. And there are lots of different worlds. There are side, side worlds to the Matrix. So that's a, that's a good piece of popular culture that has these three levels of motivation, these three directions to them. Narnia is a chronicle of seven novels written by C.S. Lewis. It's one of the most famous children's series of all time of the 20th century. It's a little bit older. It's not quite as current as Harry Potter and The Matrix, but it's so deep embedded in our culture. There are modern adaptations of film of these books, and they're more aimed towards a younger audience, I think. But they stand the test of time because they have these mythological themes which are 
foundational. And so they speak to the story of our lives very deeply because they have those. These are the works that C.S. Lewis is probably most famous for, but he was also a hard-hitting scholar as well. So he taught at a university and he was a professor. So he really knew quite a lot and was a really sharp intellectual who familiarized himself with some really deep and heavy intellectual fields such as psychology and theology and empiricism and value structures. And one of my favorite books by C.S. Lewis is actually The Abolition of Man, which is where he talks about the education system, the conditioning of students, and what it means to realize that there are limits to the constraints of conditioning. He also keeps stumbling around these dichotomies of values and development, and he really struggles to put these things together to reconcile big things like God and empiricism, evolution and conditioning. C.S. Lewis was a Christian, but reluctantly so, he quite famously said. He was in a big twist within himself. He had this inner struggle to decide whether atheism or Christianity was right. He was so well familiar with the theology of Christianity, as well as having a deep academic background, a scientific background, if you would, that he had to try and square these things within himself. And of course, his mythology is top-notch. His psychological themes, his characters, the depths of his characters is better than anyone, as good as anyone. And the ability to write in fantasy is foundational to mythology. So he's very good at understanding themes of fantasy writing and what they mean psychologically for an audience what it means to have motivations, to have greed, to have betrayal, to have guilt, to be fragmented, to have multiple personalities. And this comes across most prominently in the character of Edmund in the first one, which is the first book in the Chronicle of Narnia, the Chronicles of Narnia, which is The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. It's probably the most famous C.S. Lewis book, because it's the first one. So the wardrobe is the door to the magic world. Here's that theme again of an entirely different world being separated to a door. And Lucy, another one of our main characters, makes her way into the magic world and then comes back and is telling her brothers and sisters, including Edmund, that there's a magic world, there's a magic world, you have to come and see it. I went there, I went there, you have to believe me. And of course, they don't believe her. They don't accept the call. And they go and investigate, and the door isn't open. Because the door isn't always open. Doors aren't always available. There are certain conditions under which doors to magic worlds have to be under in order for them to work. Might be a password. Might be a thing in you that you need to have in order to see it. So there are different conditions on whether doors work or not. But she's telling them this is the call, this is the story that, this is the information that her brothers and sisters, 
Lucy's brothers and sisters need to respond to. And it becomes quite a stressful thing. There's a lot of tension between the brothers and sisters. And what ends up happening is the older brother goes to the uncle or the the man who is in charge of this property, the man who is meant to be, I don't know if it's his uncle or his step godfather or something like that. I don't know what the relation is, but he's in charge of the house. He's the man of the house. And the head brother goes to this man into his mysterious study. There are all these books around. And he tells the professor about what Lucy is saying and how crazy it is and how delusional she is. And it's extremely significant that the professor doesn't take a side. He is wise enough to be able to listen to this story and not rule it out. And that really is a testament to how insightful and wise this old man is. And you can tell that he has lived his stories because he has the wisdom to be able to say, now, there is a call to action there. And it's not necessarily so that you should completely dismiss it, no matter how crazy it is, how outrageous it is. And this is quite shocking to the the older brother. Is his name Peter? I think his name's Peter. It's the older brother. And this is quite shocking because Peter is so convinced that Lucy is crazy for calling out about this magic wardrobe that the assumption was that the the professor would completely agree with him, but the professor doesn't. So that's quite an important insight. Sometimes people are taken off a train station out of nowhere into the world of Narnia. Sometimes people are looking at a painting. They're staring at the painting and then all of a sudden they're in the painting. The painting, of course, is the ship, which is the voyage of the Dawn Treader. And they make their way into the other world just by looking at the painting. One of my favourites is the magician's nephew. So the magician knows that there's another world. He's trying to concoct these experiments which can get him to Narnia, which can get him into the other world. So he's making these magic rings, these giant rings which he puts a guinea pig into and then it disappears, it pops, it goes into the other world. And then the trick is getting back. So the magician is trying to concoct these things, these magic rings that will get him to the other world, to step through the door. And there are many times in the Narnia Chronicles where there are certain calls to action. There are certain things that come up which they have to do, these various heroes, these various characters. It's quite a, quite a large, complicated series, so it's quite a lot of different examples that you can think of if you're familiar with the trivia, with the mythology. One example is when the brothers and sisters are walking through the forest and they see Aslan, who is the head father figure. He's the god figure. He's the ultimate good. He's the one true leader of the good guys. And part of their journey is having a vision of Aslan just up ahead. And it's a faint sort of vision. It's a faint sort of smoky sort of like a mirage, and they walk a little bit further, and they see him. And they walk a little bit further, and they see him. It's quite interesting that when that's happening, it's Lucy again who sees Aslan. 
It's quite interesting that Lucy is again the, the mediator of the call to action. She's the one that's heard the call and is expressing that call. She's communicating the message, passing on the message. And she does it in such a passionate way that they have to respond to her. They have to deal with what she's saying. It's quite interesting that she is the youngest. That might say something about the ignorance or the inexperience of a person, allowing them to see what a new direction is. Because if you are set on your own call to action and you are stuck in a rut on your arrow, on your path, you can't see new options coming up. So if you are moving towards something over and over again, you are stuck with your arrow facing one direction, in one direction. You won't be able to divert it into something more important, something bigger, something better. But if you're younger, you're not stuck in a rut. You're open to different options. You're, in a sense, blessed by your ignorance because you don't have preconceived assumptions which can blind your judgment of a message that is being sent to you and what it means to respond to that message. What's interesting about the character of Edmund in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is he is actually called to the evil side. So he is given the directions to the evil White Witch's castle, and he's given an incentive. He's told he'll be able to rule over the lands and do all these sort of things. Or at least that's the delusion that he's under. And he ends up getting a bitter taste in his mouth about how he was treated with the whole misunderstanding with Lucy finding the magic world. Because, of course, Edmund heard the original call and denied it. And he even experienced the magic world and denied it to his brothers and sisters instead of backing up his younger sister. And the whole idea of knowing something to be true and yet denying it led to all these problems with Edmund. It led to so much frustration within himself because he couldn't own up to his mistake. He couldn't own up to his own inadequacy of knowing what was true and what he should have done. And that drives him to go to the evil side. It drives him to seek out this evil witch. And he ends up making his journey through the snow in the cold, becoming very bitter about it. And that's his arrow. That's his journey. He's pushed off in the wrong direction because he's heard a call to come and join her and give up his brothers and sisters. And he's responded to that call. So calls are not always a call to positive action. There are things pulling us in directions all over the place. There are things that can hold our attention, which are not always good for us. There are things that can assert their importance when they're really not meant to be important. It's quite interesting that at the end of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, when these brothers and sisters have conquered evil, and ruled over the land and become kings and queens. For years on end, they've grown old. They've lived out their life in this world of Narnia. They end up back at the door. And the door is just a single step through. They're not even looking for the door. They don't even have it as a priority. It's not a goal that they're after. They're not searching for it on a map. 
There's no longer a journey involved in their story. They are simply ruling the land in peace. And it's when they let go of the journey, they no longer have a path to be walking on. They simply are as they are. They are being that they somehow end up stumbling through this door and making their way back to their original world through the magic wardrobe, which is the gateway from the normal world and the Narnia world. Narnia is a rich and deep series of stories. So there are lots of examples of calls to actions, journeys, and stepping between different worlds, stepping into different worlds. So if you're more familiar with it, you can probably think of your own examples because these themes come up again and again throughout the entire series. They're all over the place. The Narnia books are quite easy to read. They don't take that long to get through if you're an adult. They're quite enjoyable if you can understand these deeper themes. Bilbo Baggins, who is the main story hero, of The Hobbit, is having a nice evening by himself in his cute little home in Bag End. And all of, a, all of a sudden, a whole bunch of dwarves turn up and the wizard, Gandalf, and they're telling him he needs to go on this adventure. And it's quite an obvious call to action. It's quite an obvious big intrusion on his privacy for them to just turn up and start having a party and cooking a meal together and really having quite a rave, and there's quite a big fuss all over convincing him that he needs to come on this journey. Frodo, in The Lord of the Rings, which is the series after The Hobbit, of course, also has certain intuitions about what he needs to do. And at first his intuition is to take the ring, the magic ring, the evil ring, from his home to the elves to the elven city of Rivendell. That's his call to action. And it's not until there's quite a bit of debate and there's a bit of deliberation within himself that he realises he needs to go all the way to the evil city. It's not exactly clear what motivates Frodo to do this, to push him on his way. The call to action is not quite as prevalent in The Lord of the Rings as it is in some other stories. There's always something telling these hobbits in both The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins, and Frodo in The Lord of the Rings. There's always something telling them they need to go in a new direction. There's always something that is a change in the story, whether it means they need to go off on their own for a little bit, or they need to take a different path to the team that they are with, the expedition team that they are walking with, that they're traveling with, or if it's a different direction that they need to take or a different guide they need to have. Because in The Lord of the Rings, there is this creature, Gollum, who is an evil creature, but is also quite complicated because he is entwined with the magic of the ring, of the Dark Ring. And he, at some points in the journey, is the guide of Frodo. He helps Frodo along his journey. And it's very hard for Frodo to know if where Gollum is leading him, where he's calling him to, where he's taking him to, is the place that he wants to go. He is the place that he needs to be at. 
It's the direction that is best for him. It's the path that is the most safe. There are certain times in these stories, in both The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, where they do know which way they need to go, and it's a matter of just journeying along. Because it's such a long journey, there are lots of geographical hurdles. They might be going through a swamp, or they might be going over the snowy mountains, or they might be going around a certain enemy base in order to not get too close. There are also times when they're running across land, and they need to run fast to catch up with the the evil orcs. This is most obvious in the second Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, which is when two of the hobbits, Merry and Pippin, are taken by the orcs, kidnapped, and they're being run back to Isengard to be interrogated by the evil wizard Saruman, and parts of the, the team, Legolas and Aragorn, Parts of the expedition break up. Oh, and Gimli as well, the dwarf. They decide they're going to chase after these hobbits and save them. So that's an example of them knowing where they need to go because they've heard the call, they've made a decision on the call because they've been given this choice between following Frodo and Sam, the ring bearers, or chasing after Merry and Pippin. This dichotomy, this is a choice between sort of like the two doors in the Matrix, which Neo faces when he's talking to the architect. There's this split in the, it's a fork in the roads, but once they choose the fork, they know where they need to go and they need to run. They need to go fast. They need to do the work. Moment after moment, day after day, and catch up to these orcs in order to find them. And they end up on the edge of the forest. And it seems like the forest is another world that they step into and there's a whole new set of dangers, a whole new set of complications and different ways of acting when they step into the forest. And that's another example of a door. But probably most significant in The Hobbit is the door that Bilbo goes through in order to meet the dragon. So there's this magic mountain, which the dragon lives in, in The Hobbit. And when they finally go through their journey and arrive at the magic mountain, there's this secret little backway door that the dwarves know about. And Bilbo needs to go through that door in order to confront, well, not confront, but sneak up and burgle the treasure from the dragon. And Bilbo knows that once he goes through that door, he's got a very small chance of making it out alive. He's got a very small chance of being able to get away with it because the dragon is cunning. The dragon is smart. The dragon can smell him. He ends up having these conversations with the dragon, having this interplay between the two. It's quite interesting how this huge, dark, evil figure of the dragon relates to this tiny, seemingly insignificant hero of the journey, which is Bilbo. There's also the door which the expedition party goes through into the dwarf world in the Lord of the Rings. This is in the second one. Oh no, sorry, it's in the first one, the Fellowship of the Ring. So this expedition party have made their way out of Rivendell, the elvish city, 
and they're trying to get through the snowy mountains, but the pass is too difficult. So they decide to take another route, which is around through the mountain into the dwarf city. And this door that they have to open to get into, at a certain time of year when the moon is shining in a certain way, that will reveal the door to the party. And it will reveal the numerals that need to be understood in order to open the door. Sort of implying that some gateways are not always available. But of course, after a few riddles and a little bit of struggle, they make their way in. And what they find is that the dwarf city has been overrun by orcs. And the further complication is that there's a giant octopus behind them. And they end up not having any choice. Once they step through that door, there's no coming back. There's only one way through. It's in this dwarf city that Gandalf, the wizard, faces his ultimate demon. And he has had this intuition. He has known this. And this is why he sort of was reluctant to go this way with the party. This is why he was unsure that he really wanted to step through this door. Because Gandalf had an idea. He had a little bit of an inkling into what might happen if they took this path. And it ended up happening. So Gandalf, if my Lord of the Rings mythology is correct... He's the wielder of one of the rings, one of the magic rings. And his is the ring of fire. He has the power of fire. So the expedition party goes through and they confront some orcs. They fight these, they fight one of the cave trolls. And they're running away and the orcs are catching up to them and they end up being surrounded by all these orcs. But then an even worse demon comes out, which is the Balrog which is from the lowest depths of the world, the darkest, most evil flame demon, like a dragon unto itself, is awoken, and it's so evil that it even scares the orcs away. And the look on Gandalf's face when he realizes that his ultimate nemesis has come to face him is shocking. It's the ultimate showdown. It is your one darkest, deepest, most powerful evil that is coming face to face with you. The expedition party run away. They make their way over the bridge. Gandalf stands his ground and commands this giant dragon of fire that he will not pass and you cannot overpower me. He sends the dragons down to the abyss, but not without Gandalf being lashed by the ankle and pulled down after him. It's going to take a little bit more than you think to defeat darkness. You can't just throw it away. You can't just send it back to where it came from, in the depths of the earth. You have to go down with it. You have to go down into the darkness. And as you're falling, you need to grab onto your weapon. And you need to fight it yourself. You need to embrace this fight. And it's not only down from the darkest depths that you need to fight it, it's also up to the highest towers, which Gandalf recalls when he's telling his story later on to the party as they meet up further along in the story. So it's all over the place that this evil needs to be confronted until it's finally destroyed. There's also the door of Shelob's lair, which is where Gollum leads Frodo in an attempt to mislead him 
and have him killed by the giant spider. So Shelob is the giant evil spider that sneaks up on Frodo and stings him with the poisonous stinger. And it's the doorway into that that leads to the poison of Frodo. And that's a significant complication in the story towards the end of the hero's journey in Lord of the Rings. And there's lots of examples of doors coming up in different situations which lead to new legs of the journey in Lord of the Rings. But there's another one which is always there. There's a doorway which is right next to Frodo every step of the way. And that is the ring itself. It is the magic ring. So supposedly when you put this ring on, you turn invisible. And being invisible in the magic world, in this mythological world, the fantasy world, has a lot of different advantages to it. There are certain times when it has been advantageous, like when Bilbo was talking to the dragon. But Frodo carries this ring, which when he puts it on, he turns invisible. And in the movies, it's quite well portrayed that the difference between wearing the ring and not is a world apart. Wearing the ring puts you into the world of shadows. It puts you into the world of a blurriness, of spiritness. There's one time where Frodo is being confronted by the evil spirits, the Nazgul, and he puts on the ring, and it completely changes what they look like. So these Nazgul's dress in black, they're dark, they're evil. And then when he's put this ring on out of fear, they turn into these white kings. You can see their twisted faces like spirits, like these hollow souls. And so that different world is right around Frodo's neck every step of the journey. And it's like evil can see him at any time, in any place, in any way, if he just puts on that ring, because the the evil figure is an eye. This idea of being seen is quite a powerful theme of evil being able to know what you are and therefore be able to destroy you because it knows where you are. And that's with Frodo every step of the way. And the final climax of the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy is when Frodo steps through the door into the volcanic mountain. He stepped into that little ledge and he's gone along the walkway towards all the lava and he says that the ring is mine. And he gives into that other world and he puts it on and it all comes to a head. It all comes tied together. It's the final call. It's the final arrow of direction reaching its target. And it's him stepping into the world that is the world of shadow at the exact same time as he steps through the door that he has been working towards for the entire story. The opportunity for him to step through that door and do what is right and do what is good has been building all this time, and he's had to do all these things to be ready for it, and yet it also happens that he steps into that shadow world at exactly the same time. It's the collision of the worlds, and ultimately it's the evil that is trying to overtake Frodo that leads to him putting on the ring, and therefore allowing Gollum to become jealous and frustrated and turn into this fit of anger and then drive him to steal the ring 
off Frodo, which then of course leads to the the destruction of the ring because he falls over into the lava. And that's a comment on how evil collapses onto itself. Evil works against itself. So there are a lot of different ways to dissect the mythology of Lord of the Rings. But the call to action and the arrow of the journey and stepping into the door, stepping into the other world, is an interesting way of doing that, just like it is with Harry Potter and the Matrix and Narnia. But I hope after all these examples, you can see how it's a recurring theme and you can really build up this picture of what it looks like to have a call to action. Sometimes you can be called in the wrong direction. Sometimes you can deny hearing the right direction. Sometimes you can misinterpret a message. Sometimes you can not know what it means to hear a call to action. But if you can hear enough messages coming your way, then you can get onto this path. You can get onto this journey. And then you'll know what you need to do. You just need to get down and do the work. And when you've been working at that for a while, you'll realize that you only need to make one step in order to arrive. And you won't be able to make that step because of your fear of the unknown. You'll have some idea of what's on the other side of the door, but you won't exactly trust it. You won't be ready for it. You won't be strong enough for it. Calls happen all the time in our daily lives. A call might be as simple as an emotion. It might be an intuition. You might have a bad feeling about someone. You might have a bad feeling about a situation. Someone might say something which makes you feel uncomfortable. You might be in association with someone who is calling you in a certain direction that doesn't feel right. And it's a recurring theme in most stories that when we hear the call that is noble, when we hear the call to action which we should respond to, we deny it. And these would be the things that we know are good for us, which we should do, which we don't do. I should probably do this today. I should probably work on this. I know it would be good for me if I was more consistent with the things that I do, like learning, like working on my diet or my habits or my inadequacies or my relationships, working on myself, working on my life story, trying to make something for myself. If only I could listen to the things that I knew were good for me, if only I could do the things that I knew were right, if only I could step towards the indications that I get every day that some things I do are the wrong thing to do and other things I do are the right thing to do. If I really think about it, if I actually sit down and try to notice and listen to what is being told to me from the environment, I can hear that some things are pulling me in a different direction to others. And after a while, after I've cultivated that, I'll be able to be motivated towards those positive things. I'll be able to wake up every day and get into it. And I'll hear the call. And I'll hear it again. And I'll know what I have to do. And I'll be able to assume that I'm heading in the right direction. And that means I'll be able to make some distance. I'll be able to go through the process. 
I'll make some ground. I'll build some skills. I'll build some knowledge. I'll have more experience. I'll have a bigger understanding. I'll have a wider variety of experiences. And that will be my arrow. That will be my journey. That will be my narrative. There have been times when I've walked that path long enough to know that the door is only one step away. And the more I walk the path, the more I realize that it's readily available. It's immediate. It's right there. And the more I think about it, the more I delay, the more anxiety I get about it. This is probably because I'm getting more of a picture of what it means to step into the unknown and just how unknown it is. Because it is a dramatic change to step through the door. It's a totally different world. The very ground falls out from beneath my feet, and everything that I knew is left behind. Furthermore, everything that I've known has been destroyed. Everything that I thought, everything that I felt, the people in my life, the situations that I was in, the experiences that I've had, they're all gone, they're dead. They're non-existent. That entire world is gone. There's nowhere that I can point to and say that it exists. And there's no way that I can know how to go back to that world once I go through the door. If you really understand the significance of a door, you'll know that everything changes once you step through it. There is absolutely no going back. And it is total. It is final. It is the most dramatic step that one can take in a journey. And it's not a process. It's not a sequence. A door is right there. And perhaps it's a little bit paradoxical that we have to walk the journey in order to reach the door and realize that it was there all along. And this is just one way that we can make sense of our life story. This is one way we can dissect our mythology in our popular stories but we should always remember that these stories resonate with us because they are our stories they are the stories of our life and the more we think about it the more we can expand our understanding the more we can navigate this story the more we can open up to possibilities the more we can change our directions And the more we can muster up the courage to step into that door again and again. Step deeper and deeper into another world. And take on the true significance of what it means to burst forth, to open up, to expand, to let go of the past to open up to the present moment, to experience the reality that we're in, to recognize the things that we've missed, the things that we've lost, the delusions we used to suffer under, and how glorious it will be when we finally make that step into the unknown. That's all I have to say for today.